homogenized sameness. You and I, we live in interesting, I think even unsettling times. I mean, just look back through the changes just in your own lifetime. If you're even 22 years old, you've seen the change of a century. That's a big deal on any history timeline. But then also look at these 21 years into century 2000. Look at the technology and medicine, the, the state of the world as a whole, the state of the family and schools, politics, and you know, frankly, even church. Isn't it amazing how changed our world, our families, our churches, and our countries are? I love personal history, and anybody who knows me knows that I love to trace the lines of my kids, my family, from all the lines, you know, down each of those lines. And the further back I get, the more excited I am. I'll tell you why I love it. I love it because it impacts me by expanding my own personal view of how grace has engaged every generation and brought me here, me, here, today. Here, equipped for my own generation of grace. That said, it also inspires me to use my generation as a firm stepping stone for my kids and my grandkids and for anyone who might one day want to know who carried grace to them. Of course, you must know that not every generation has welcomed or respected grace. I can tell you it certainly wasn't easy for some of my generational carriers of grace. In some cases, they were personally targeted. They were robbed of home and lands. They were imprisoned, and in some cases, they were killed because of grace. Some fled with just the clothes on their backs and made and endured horrendous trips to get to where I call home today. So tracing their steps demands that I look carefully at grace and at the courage and the vision, the determination and the hope that they used to get this lady into this generation in this century. Now that's not to say that I haven't also found scoundrels mixed into my family lines too. But I've noticed something very interesting. In some cases, Grace has skipped right over or worked around, and in some cases, very effectively worked right through many a scoundrel throughout history. Don't think of grace as timid or easily detoured or easily subjected to the will of man. I gotta tell you, that would be a mistake for sure. And just a little bit of generational review would convince you of that. Well, I want us to go back to our lifetime and just step back for a minute and look at one of the common characteristics just in our lifetime. I think you'll see it in, in other generations as well. I think it's pretty common throughout world history. And it is this push toward sameness, a predefined sameness. I, I have a word for it. I call it homogenized sameness because it seems to have been put through a determined process 
in order to remove any uniqueness first and then begin a systematic redefinition until sameness is achieved. No matter where you live, just look at your country, look at your schools and other things and, and see if you see what I see. And that is there is a sameness this world is insisting on. Can you see where uniqueness, individual perspective and insight is being ridiculed almost on every hand? At the same time, that sameness, homogenized sameness, is elevated. I mean, from medicine to education, from information, and even within community groups, sameness seems to me to be on a rampage. Truth is, you resist at your own peril. Well, it's not an accident that this world is running headlong into another, however updated 21st century form of, Sameness. Oh, trust me, sameness has been around for a very long time. It has changed its clothes many times throughout history. But it always eventually ends up being exposed as the tyranny that it actually is. Sameness is, and even more so, I think homogenized sameness, is antithetical to grace. I believe it's antithetical to God, the creator. Come on. You know that if you walk outside into your garden right now today, you will not see sameness from flower to flower, even on the same vine. You won't see sameness in dogs of the same breed or sameness of kids in the same family. Sameness isn't godliness. Not in any form of sameness, sameness is it godliness. And my goal today is to convince you of that. And yet, here we are. We live in a world that seems to be on a projectile of sameness. To coerce and convince and if necessary even extort you into sameness of thought, sameness of word, sameness of income, medical treatment, and a whole lot more. Why? What benefit is there to achieving this sameness? What makes sameness such a delicious target for tyrants? Well, a few possibilities might be control. Sameness eliminates resistance and allows power. No one needs to think things through or ask questions. Nobody needs to make discovery or there's nothing to challenge. Life is all about compliance. Now, if I named them, you would recognize immediately several recent modern history sameness cultures. They are, the more common ones are communism, Maoism, socialism, but believe me, these three are not. They might be the most recent versions that we know about. But let me tell you, they are not the only versions. Some of the most ardent, violent, tyrannical sameness regimes have been religious. Some even began frighteningly close after the resurrection of grace that was embodied in the Son of God who actually respected the uniqueness of the Creator in each and every one of His children. It's really hard. You always scratch your head in disbelief 
that religion could have gotten it so wrong so soon after such a display of grace as we found in Jesus. Religion wanted Jesus to comply, but he didn't. He sought out the singular one, the personal, the individual. He made each person he met feel known by grace. Oh, I want to say that again. Feeling personally known by grace is the most amazing, unforgettable moment you'll ever live. To be known by grace is looking into the eyes of the one who knew you, knew you before he formed you and before he named you. Looking into the eyes of the only one that saw you before you began. And then, and then he sets his love. I love that word. He's, his love is set on you. He knows exactly the character he loves. He knows the twists and turns of your personality. He knows the pitfalls of your heart. He knows the strength of your intentions. He also knows the weakness of your desires. He knows you. And he sets, there it is, he sets his love on you. He doesn't set his love on y'all. No. He sets it on you. If we look at the tyranny of sameness in religion, we find conformity of religion normally hovering around rules. Typically, it begins with just a few religious housekeeping rules, you know, guidelines within a community of believers, regardless of which type of religion it is. And then because human behavior is what it is, a few more rules are soon needed to explain and define the existing ones. But before you know it, what might have begun as a harness, a harmless set of guidelines, has slipped over the shoulders of those who comply, like a harness, and then a halter, and finally a chain. Don't believe me? Think maybe I'm a little bit too critical? Oh, go read history. Okay, so how can a community of believers, in our case, the community of grace, how can it function without rules? How is that even possible? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. But first, you must acknowledge that it does function without rules. You see, rules insist the individual comply with homogenized sameness. Be very clear. Be very sure grace does not function where sameness rules. Grace does not function where the individual is sacrificed on the altar of sameness. Sorry. I'm so sorry if that feels foreign to you. But I know that in your heart of hearts, if you think it through, you know it's true if you know God at all. There is something that remains the same with God. That's true. There is something that remains the same with God. And that's grace. Grace always respects the uniqueness, the one-on-one -on -one complexity of the individual. Remember, God spent Jesus to redeem and restore that soul. 
Grace isn't needed when sameness is in authority. You don't need grace to live up to sameness. Grace is operational one-on-one. It cannot be generalized. It cannot be cloned. The unique complexity of each believer as he interacts in faith with God, that's where grace works. Okay, I can prove this to you for your consideration if you'll let me go there with you. But you have to be get rid of your fear of no rules. Don't be afraid of no rules. There is only one rule operational in grace, and it respects the individuality of the believer. It esteems the unseen work of faith within each heart and mind. It protects the faith of the individual, and it insists on respect. This community of grace, this bastion of respect for the operation of grace within each believer cannot be mixed with rules. you got to remember that. Rules cancel out the operation of grace because rules demand sameness where grace demands uniqueness. I hope to show you this clearly in the scriptures. Just stick with me for a little bit longer. I have to warn you, though, this podcast, at least for me, was a game changer. It was as radical a game changer for me as the first discovery of what really occurred on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 was for me. And one more time, I give complete credit to Pastor Joseph Prince for first pointing it out to me and insisting I look clearly at something I thought I already understood. But you see, that look, that discovery changed everything for me. And it actually put me on a path to understanding why it was that Jesus had to nail the law, i.e. the most famous list of rules in history. He called it the indictment of ordinances against me. He defined it as contrary to me. He said it was against me. It had to be nailed. It had to be abolished. It had to be ended by Jesus before grace could become operational because the two are at enmity with each other. They always have been. They still are. They always will be. Jesus knew full well that rules and grace don't dance. It's quite clear. All the way back in the garden, it's quite clear. There were only ever two trees there to choose from. The choices weren't the tree of life or the tree of sin. No. It was knowledge of good and evil. Religion tells you that choosing good over evil is life. But newsflash, good is not a branch on the tree of life. The choice wasn't between life and sin. The choice was between life and knowledge, defined good and evil. Once Adam chose the latter, you remember what happened. He was excluded from the first, the tree of life. He was refused access to it by cherubim guarding the way of the tree of life. It wasn't until Jesus, after Calvary, restored access to the tree of life to those who would believe that he is the end of the law, the end of defined good and evil, best known list of rules ever. Paul, who wrote the letter that we're going to examine today, and also the letter to the Galatians will reference, 
He warns believers to be very careful not to mix rules in with grace. He's pretty strong on it. Remember how Adam was denied access to the tree of life once he took the knowledge of good and evil. He lost everything that had been freely provided for him. And Paul in Galatians, he says, you will forfeit what Calvary freely gave you if you insist that grace needs or even allows rules. It does not. Don't let anyone pressure you to put conformity above grace. Okay, so let's allow Paul then to describe how it is that the community of grace interacts without rules, without rigidly defined good or evil. I got to tell you, I was surprised. You might be too, because I've always thought of this one chapter in Romans as kind of an insignificant kind of church housekeeping chapter. I just thought of it as a small part of a larger letter that was addressing some housekeeping issues specific only to the community of grace there in Rome. But oh my Jesus, it is not that. No. And let me tell you, it is not insignificant. In fact, this chapter sets out the fundamentals for the operation of grace within a community of believers where rules are not the yardstick. Rules in this setting would actually violate the operation of faith that is unique to each individual believer, and by doing so, would frustrate grace. So I ask again, without rules, how does grace function? We seem to find it almost unbelievable, inconceivable, that anything could function without rules. Well, the chapter in question is Romans 14. Now, i got to tell you, it's not the only place in Scripture that tells us this same truth. But for time's sake, we're going to look at, in this podcast, just as, as Romans 14. And this is part one of a two-part podcast. I use another Scripture in part two later on. So Romans 14. It describes a church perplexed by how to handle differences among their members. Things as simple as eating meat that was once offered to idols. You know, meat is only an example Paul uses to teach them here how the community of grace functions. The issue isn't eating meat. It's grace functioning without rules and therefore also without frustration. Remember, the context is the operation of grace within a community of believers. And it answers how and why grace can function without the need for rules. So let's get started. Example number one is in Romans 14 too. And it tells us that one member within this community might eat anything, but another might eat only herbs. That uniquely personal faith and grace of each member is paramount. And so in this, Paul reminds us, don't judge the one who only eats herbs nor the one who eats freely, because God receives them both. They are both his servants, not yours, and it's before him that they stand uniquely, individually, personally. It's before him only. 
and their standing before him is based solely on the complex one-on-one interaction they have with him by faith through grace. Oh my gosh, you might want to rewind and listen to that one more time. It's grace at work in the faith of each member. Don't judge it. Don't touch it. Example number two. One member respects one day above others. Another member sees all days equal. And then he makes this statement. Every man must be, here's the first eye opener. I mean, this is a big eye opener. Every man must be fully persuaded in his own mind. So much for sameness. So much for homogenized sameness. So much for rules. Every man must be fully persuaded in his own mind. Wow. I cannot even imagine the tremors that went through Paul the first time he said those words out loud. Each believer in his own heart. And then he goes on to say, this is the reason Christ died and rose. For this one-on-one impact of grace in the heart of each believer. Don't touch it. Don't judge it. Well, if you thought those two were big, Wait until you see Romans 14, 13. This is a game changer. And I got to tell you, I am certain Paul likely gagged and sputtered the first time he had uttered these words. I think the first time he heard them out loud, he might have even peed his pants. He says here, Jesus himself, this is Paul, says Jesus himself persuaded me. That word persuaded means to fully know, prove, and practice. And he says, Jesus fully persuaded him that there is nothing unclean of itself. Oh my gosh. Paul's entire life before Christ was only about clean versus unclean. This had to have been such a revelation to him that clean and unclean are determined by the faith of the believer. Are you kidding me? That's exactly what it says. He says to him that sees it clean, to him it's clean. To him who sees it unclean, not to everyone, but to him it is unclean. I want you to let that sift down into your heart. That the faith of the believer is paramount to grace. To him, to the believer, clean might be unclean. What you see What one sees as clean might be unclean to another. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you're experiencing some of the same quaking as Paul as you let that sink in. Clean and unclean, right and wrong, good and evil, have been defined forever by rules. But Romans 14, 13 says, not anymore. Not within the community of grace. Can this really be? How does this not end up in chaos? Well, verse 15 answers that question. Chapter 14, verse 15. If your fellow believer is grieved by your freedom, the solution is charity, love. Don't destroy his faith because Christ died for him. Don't let your freedom undermine the work of grace in your brother. 
all things are pure, Paul says, except to the one who sees it impure. Once again, the faith of the believer is what determines pure or impure. So I say it again, can this really be? Hey, I didn't write this. I'm just reading it. And by the way, this isn't the only place that says the same thing. The difference between homogenized sameness and the equity of grace, the difference is love. Sameness is coerced and even extorted, where the equity of grace is both individualized and yet from one common love. You cannot generalize the work of grace. You cannot clone the work of grace from one member to the other. Grace is uniquely individual. You must respect that. Chapter 14, verse 22. Do you have faith? Okay, have it before God. That's great, have it. Do you have freedom? Great, have it before God. Happy is the man who is not condemned in their freedom. You have freedom, be blessed in that freedom. Again, this is not about meats or days. It's about grace at work without frustration through the faith of each member. Rules and sameness frustrate grace. I'm going to say that again. Rules and sameness frustrate grace. Chapter 14, verse 23, the brother that doubts is damned if he eat because what he's doing isn't of faith. If he's doing it in doubt to him, to him it is wrong. For whatsoever is not of faith, that is sin. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is the line, this line right here. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's what started me thinking about this podcast. It got under my skin and irritated me until I finally went and looked at it. So let's unpack it. Within the community of grace, each member's faith is a unique place of grace. There's nothing unclean of itself unless your heart condemn you. And then to you, it is unclean. If your brother's faith restricts him from what your uh, freedom allows, love is the answer in your interaction with them. Love is the rule of grace. You cannot meddle with his face. Faith, that's off limits. You see, love is the bridle. Love is the harness. Love is the reins of grace. Love is the only rule within the community of grace because love alone leaves the work of grace to evolve uniquely in each believer. One more time, love is the only rule within the community of grace because love alone leaves the work of grace to evolve uniquely. Unique timetable, unique quality, unique quantity. Love allows the work of grace to evolve uniquely in each believer. Now, Romans 5, I mentioned it before. I want to mention it again because it says that sin is the transgression of the law. But here in Romans 14, it says, 
whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, i got to tell you, both of those statements are true as long as you understand that after Calvary, Christ ended the law to anyone who believes that he ended the law. Therefore, because of Calvary, you are no longer under the law. The law is irrelevant to you, that most famous set of rules. So what constitutes sin to those who are not under the law? To those to whom the law does not speak anymore. If you are under the law, then sin is the transgression of the law. But if you are under grace, the faith of the individual believers, Romans chapter 14 says, defines what is clean and unclean, what is pure and impure, what is sin and not. I tried to warn you, this is a game changer. Again, I didn't write this, I'm just reading it. Grace demands that you and I respect the place of faith in a fellow believer. Grace demands that we allow the unique one-on-one interaction in them to define for them what is sin. You see, faith is not the absence of sin. That's what religion tells you. No, sin is the absence of faith. Where faith is not in residence, sin is in evidence. No matter why a brother isn't free where you are free, you must respect their faith. It's love that will bridle your words. It's love that will restrain your reactions. It's love that will guide your relationship with that brother. You see, faith works by love. Love is the only way life within the community of grace functions without rules and without frustration. I got to tell you, anybody who says living in grace is easy simply doesn't know grace. This is very challenging to do, given our predisposition to prejudice and judging others. You see, when you remove the law, the rules, the sameness, then grace excels, and grace is free to mature in each heart. Take your cue from Romans 14 and let love rule. It isn't easy, but it is God's masterful bonding agent. Respect the work of grace in your spouse. Respect the work of grace in your kids, in your neighbor. Grace might be unseen and unheard, But each person redeemed by grace is also the priority of grace. And grace demands that we respect that. Only grace knows where the heart of each believer is. Don't mess with that. Don't touch that. Love it. The conclusion of this podcast is in part two. And I hope that you'll finish unpacking this truth with me as I go into 1 John 2 and 3.